You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's Concrete Conversations, it's my delight to welcome Kat Sainsbury from Pop Architecture here today in Melbourne. Welcome, Kat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kat, before we explore a little bit of some of the projects that you've done and some of the amazing effects that you've created with Concrete Masonry, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. I grew up in Melbourne, not far from here actually, just in Carlton North. My dad's an architect and my mum studied urban planning. So I really spent my childhood kind of surrounded by talk of buildings and cities and spent a lot of time at my dad's drawing board having a go there. So I feel like it's just kind of embedded in my personality. Yeah. And going through school, was it with that experience, was there a part, you know, with architecture, I always find that there's the drawing side and then obviously the maths and the equations. Was there any particular part that you lent to more? I was really interested in art. I was really passionate about it. I did it all the way through school and at the end of year 12, like one of my preferences was fine art. I kind of ended up going with architecture, thinking that maybe it was a more practical outcome. (laughs) Although I still haven't sort of let go of the fact that I didn't pursue fine art. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I think about going back there. But I guess I was really, I really did enjoy maths Mm -hmm. and I was really good three-dimensionally. Even as a kid, I really liked stuff like origami which was much more about three-dimensional form rather than a flat artwork so I think the two worked well together and did you know that you I mean when you got to year 12 was there something that prompted you to choose architecture or was that just sort of a, a road that was there it was crunch time okay and I thought it was the best option for me at the time even though I had kind of reservations about it just because I'd seen the reality of it. Yeah. I'd seen um, my father ran his own business and it was great for him, but there were certainly stressful aspects to it. And so I didn't sort of have this idealised version of what architecture was. I had yes. a real, I had a very realistic idea about what it meant and mm. so that was probably why I was tentative, but that wasn't enough <laughs> to deter me. When you were growing up, I just wonder, because you were exposed so much to this environment, were there any architects that you in that were, I guess, influential or that you looked up to or that you loved your work during that time? I don't know that I was particularly aware of other architects until I was at uni and then there was a real, you know, that was amazing in terms of the exposure we got then to architectural history and architects in Melbourne, architects internationally. I think that was the first time I was really exposed to that and that was exciting because before then it was it was much more limited or like it, it wasn't really my focus. Yeah. So tell us about the university experience because it's so different for so many architects. Yeah. Where did you go and how did you find it? I went to Melbourne Uni. It was great. In hindsight, I'm really glad it was pre-COVID <laughs> because I really had that 
full university experience of forming really tight friendships with other people in my year because, you know, there's only 110 people in the year. So I'm still in contact with a lot of those people. They're some of my closest friends. And at that time at Melbourne Uni, and I guess it is now, it was the old architecture building, so it wasn't what it is today. Um, Nothing is, I think. (laughs) But it still had a fun vibe, you know. You walked in there and everyone was there and studio time was really fun, Mm -hmm. although there were a lot of late nights. Going to university, was it what you expected or was it, you know, another dimension? I don't know. It seemed it's so, it's so long ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was probably, in doing architecture, it was probably more like school than I anticipated oh, right. because it was kind of a small year group. It wasn't like studying one of those broader degrees where you're in a cohort of, mm. you know, 1,500 people. Yeah. It, it was more like an ex- extension of school but yes. more focused. I think that was good in ways. And you mentioned before that obviously exposed to architecture and the history and some, you know, I guess well-known. Was there any architects that stood out for you? I remember we did this intense history subject where we, you know, it was sort of the full gamut of architectural history in one semester. And some of the ones that really stood out at that time I think were Louis Kahn, which is really relevant to this conversation, not that I realised that at the time, Mm. but there was a lot of talk then about honesty to materials and what a material wants to be mm-hmm. and that really resonated with me as did a lot of the modernist architects both local and international I find myself going back to the work of Oscar Niemeyer and I also love Scarpa's work not that he's a modernist but gosh there's so many to think of on the spot but I think I've got a few hits yes, there. Yep. <laughs> And then what, so did you do your degree straight through or did you go travelling in the middle? I, at the time when I was studying, you did three years, what's equivalent now to an undergrad, and then you did a year out Mm. of work experience and then you came back for another two. And so in my year out, I lived in China for most of the year. Oh, wow. Abouts in China? In Sichuan, which is sort of central China. Yes. I actually went there to teach English. As because you had a full year out, but you only had to do six months of work experience. And so not that I was interested in being a teacher, but I was interested in not doing architecture for a period of time. Okay. And why China? I had studied Chinese at school. Okay. And I'd been there before and there was something about it that made me want to return. An amazing physical landscape Mm. and obviously a completely different culture. It was like being on a different planet at the time. I mean, that was in 2005. And so I spent time in Sichuan teaching loosely. I don't know if I'd call it that. <laughs> and travelling. Um, like got to go to Tibet from there, which is like it's quite difficult to get into Tibet and did travelling sort of south and east of that. And then after that moved to Shanghai where I did work. I worked for an interior design group in Shanghai as part of the work experience um, aspect. What were some of your observations of I guess, architecture and work being in China compared to Australia. I mean, it's really diverse. Oh, it was so different. It was one of the most obvious things at the time was the timelines. It was so fast. It was, and much looser. Mm. I mean, I don't, it's possibly changed now, but, you know, the standards 
here in terms of the milestones you've got to meet, you know, building surveyor requirements, etc., to actually get a job on site and get going are just so stringent compared to what was happening there at the time. And it was probably also a bit that a lot of the jobs I was working on were interior based. So okay. they don't require as much of that, but it was like finish the drawing and go to site next week to look at it wow. in some instances. Because the thing about here is there is some local manufacturing, but not to the extent that there is in China. So the manufacturing's on the doorstep. So it just happened from that sense much more quickly. I never forget I was in Shanghai around that same time and I was staying, I think it was like the higher, and it was a 70, 80 level story hotel. And I remember distinctly being on the 73rd level. And I opened the windows one morning and there were two window washers there um no harnesses oh my god nothing yeah and just kind of that's how they did it you know and they would bring the peasants in and that was evidently mm. lost a couple but mm. yeah that was just mm. how they do it but i'll never forget that as long as yeah. I yeah i mean certainly shanghai had such wild extremes yes there was, it was a huge expat community which was pretty isolated and privileged and then a lot of locals who were some in the same kind of category and, and others obviously not and that was kind of became more and more difficult to kind of reconcile I think. Mm. So you spent a whole year there and then yeah, you came year, back? Came back yes finished the last did the last two years. Yeah. Okay and how do you think just that experience has impacted the way you look at design now? I think it was good to be somewhere completely different to whether I refer directly to the architecture of Shanghai or Chengdu. It's more about knowing that the world is bigger than Mm -hmm. Melbourne or bigger than Fitzroy and keeping yourself in check because of that. Very true. (laughs) So you come back to Australia and then what happens? And you do your last two years and then what happens? Um, straight out of uni, I got a job at Lyons mm-hmm. um, and I was there for about three years and that was a real trial by fire and not because of the type of office it was. It was just like first job out of uni, it's like, oh, my God, I don't know anything. <laughs> first day in the office, opening up a drawing of a like complex scientific building and they're like, attach an expert which is you know a thing in autocad and i'm like i don't know who that is i don't have any practical skills mm. you know <laughs> but the amount that i learned in that three years was just extraordinary mm. and i loved being exposed to people of so many different skill levels mm. and areas of experience it was fantastic and also being in, the, in an office that was so driven by design there was so much emphasis on iterative design which graduates like me were the ones that got to do that you'd work closely with the director and they'd get you to test various iterations of an idea and so that was a bit contrary to what I was kind of expecting in the workplace I thought it was going to be much drier okay but going to Lyons and then after Lyons Woodmarsh both very design focused offices that didn't still got very was still exposed to design And even though there were really mundane aspects of the job, there was always talk about design and Mm. ideas, which I loved. And were there any sort of projects that you knew in those early stages you look back on and you learned a lot or maybe you look back and want to cry just in terms of the... I don't know if I want to say this because it's so embarrassing. That's usually what people want to hear. 
I was on a project with Lions and it was out at La Trobe and it was with a major builder and it was this huge um, scientific research project. Yeah. And I'd never been on a site that big and I'd just come from the office, which was in Collins Street, yeah. and get to site. And we're in the site shed, which was like this expansive, you know, network of site sheds. And the builder's like, do you want a coffee? Or, and I was like, yeah, I'll have a latte. <laughs> it's like, just looked at me and like pointed to the Nescafe, like dispenser. Instant. Yes. Instant. And I was like, so ashamed. So embarrassed. <laughs> I don't think that was the answer to your question. But it was the exposure to the reality of construction. And building sites. And yes. building and- sites. And translating what you're working on in the comfort of the office to what building actually is and how many people are involved and how complex it is. And just on that, I mean, we hear from architects how important it is with their drawing skills just to be able to resolve conflicts on site. Have you found that at all, just to be able to draw, to show things? Yes, definitely. Particularly to builders and tradespeople. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've noticed on all projects I've been on, the better you're able to communicate in that moment mm-hmm. with whoever you're talking to, it's kind of the easier it is to resolve the issue. Mm-hmm. So I do still draw when I'm on site and it is a really useful skill. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I think it, Camilla Block was saying that a lot of young architects don't feel like, you know, with everything that's coming on these days that it's such, you know, that it's a skill that's worth developing. But she was saying how important it is for yeah, those particular yeah, yeah. Yeah, situations. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. I don't really think about it too much, but I think it was good being on the cusp of technology development. You know, when I was at uni, we were starting to learn CAD and Rhino, you know, 3D programs, but we still did like almost the first half by hand. Yes. And so while my skills aren't as great as, say, the previous generation, I can do it. Yes. I don't feel self-conscious about it. So then you were at Wooden Knife how long? Five years. Wow. Yeah. And and then after that, you decided? After Wooden Marsh, I... I'd had one, I'd had my first child in that time and I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to try something else. But I, to be honest, at the time I didn't really know that that was starting my own practice yes. or, you know, joining with Justine to start our practice. It was just a bit of a, a feeling of I just want to see what else is around, what else is possible that wasn't that that wasn't working in a large practice. Yeah. And so how did this come about? How did you and um, She is she actually worked at Architectus where Dad was for 30 years. And so that's sort of how we first met, but we got to know each other then through mutual friends sort of thing. And she kind of taken a six month break. At about the same time I'd finished up at Woodmarsh and it just we just sort of met up one day after she'd come back from travelling and I said, Oh, I've got a bunch of projects and I can't do them by myself. And I also don't really want to do them by myself, mm. even if I could. Like I really wasn't interested in flying solo. Yeah. And the timing was just great. And so we started together and we had kind of a three month relationship trial period. Okay, that's where I was really on, nice. Where I was on my best behaviour. So <laughs> <laughs> like, don't break up with me. And it worked out. And how long ago was that? That was five and a half years ago. 
Mm. And when you first started, what sort of projects were you involved in? Residential. Mm-hmm. We got a number of projects starting out via a couple of different interior designers. One was Beatrix Rowe, who yes. we did the South Yarra house with. Yes. And another was Karen Murphy, who we've worked on a number of projects with, including Fellow House. And they were amazing connections to have mm-hmm. because it enabled us to work on projects of a certain scale and complexity that we might not have been able to get on our own at that mm. point. Now, just talk to me a little bit about your interest in tapestry. Oh. I know that you've um, won here Australia's um, Tapestry Design Prize for Architects. Yeah. How did that, that come about? Oh, well, a lot of my friends are artists and I've two of my closest friends, Cass Chilton and Molly O'Shaughnessy, part of the artist collective, the Hotham Street Ladies, who are kind of a, an all-female artist collective who do quite subversive and humorous artwork. I'm not sure if you've seen much of it, but they, uh, some of their earlier work was all using icing, right. like cake icing, yes. but sort of as graffiti or to create kind of hectic scenes from a house party. Okay. All with a real feminist take or comment. Anyway, Cass is also a landscape architect. She works at Rush Wright and... We we were just kind of chatting one day and we said, oh, we should collaborate on this thing because it kind of would be interesting to see what we could come up with. And so it, kind of, it came out of that. And, yes, I'm definitely interested in textiles. And so that was a happy sort of coincidence as well. And we really did love exploring ideas about textiles in the design for that in the same way that we would explore architectural materials and it was fun to learn all about that. One of the great outcomes of that was that one of the senior weavers at the tapestry workshop is Finn's mother (laughs) and so we, Chris, Finn's mum, we had a bit to do with after we won that because there was talk about how you would realise the design. Mm. Um, and in that process we were introduced to Finn and he's been here for now, feels like forever, but must be about four years or something. Mm. Yeah. And so just, I mean, I used to do a lot of, of cross-stitch, but when you look at the textiles in, in particular in tapestry, what were the, I guess, what were your favourite textiles to oh. use in that? What really appealed to me, being, I guess, kind of an architect, was the the opposing, what do you call it, the weft and the weave or something? Warp and weft. Weft and warp. Weft and warp, and we're not talking Brexit. No, but it's like one's the, you know, <laughs> x-axis and one's the y-axis. Yes. And so it is very graphic or very architectural. Yeah. And it's interesting that you have to sort of work in two opposing directions. Mm. But one of the textiles that was most amazing, back to your question, is the back of the tapestry, which is much more chaotic than the front. Yes. And it was it's kind of nice. We <laughs> loved going to the tapestry workshop. It was just the scale that they work at was amazing. And also the way they were able to interpret what seemed like quite I don't mean cartoonish in that they weren't realistic in their rendering, but, like, they were able to interpret quite two-dimensional images lacking sort of colour range yeah. onto this amazing tapestry where they were selecting yarns that would make a particular colour 
that you that you wouldn't otherwise have picked up in yes. the image. Like it was quite an amazing skill. Yeah. Well, whilst we're on materials, well, let's go to obviously South Yarra House and. You did a really interesting, well, beautiful interpretation of what you could do with concrete masonry. Just talk to us a little bit about why you chose that material and and we can talk a little bit about the effects of that as well. Sure. Mm. There's a bit to unpack with how that came about. Sure. Let's start Um, at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) When we first went to the site, so it's it's an extension to a brickhead wardian. That's right, yep. When we first went to site, it had obviously... It was in its original condition, but it had, had various kind of bits and bobs added onto the back of it. It was really dark, even though the block was north-facing. So, you know, as an architect, you're like, okay, well, we'll take all that away. But the really amazing things that we drew, even from that first site visit, were this beautiful and towering eucalypt tree that was actually in the neighbour's yard but sort of towered over this South Yarra House backyard. It was also a really sunny day Mm -hmm. and so we walked down the back laneway and on the back laneway there were all these just banal corrugated fences. Okay. But the way the light was catching them was so striking and so beautiful. I mean, you see that all the time, Mm -hmm. but just on that particular day it it really resonated and when we came back to the office and looked at our site photos, we each, both Justin and I, individually had just we'd taken so many pictures of this fence and we'd taken so many pictures of the tree and so those kind of elements we took I guess in the end we kind of distilled what we loved about those elements into this form Mm -hmm. and in the case of the tree it was kind of this beautiful sort of ivory curvaceous curvaceous ivory trunk and for the fences it was that amazing texture that changed as the sun sort of tracked mm. across it. And so you can see then sort of how that came about. Mm. But also mixed in with that was history of brick and concrete. We I'd recently travelled to Japan at that time and there was I mean you see it you see the same sort of precast here, but it was this particular sort of corduroy precast with exposed ab- aggregate facing yeah. that I'd seen over there that was really relevant to this. Mm. And so in the as we were trying to resolve how we would build this, there were, you know, we did think about doing precast. Yeah. We talked about a lot of things. Would you tile it? Would you do an off-form concrete? Would mm. you do pre- prefab concrete? And I guess because of the scale of it mm. and all the stuff that we were trying to achieve with it, so there's a kitchen in it, there's yes. a pizza oven, there's mechanical ductwork because you've used it internally and externally yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful yeah and there's also feature. a like you know there's a retract there's a slight there's a cavity slider in there yeah so because of the complexities of what it was actually doing functionally we ended up at brick because mm-hmm. it was more there was a, a bit a little bit more tolerance in it it could be more <coughs> easily adjusted on site which is what ended up happening mm-hmm. um but sort of still adjust it within this framework of this beautiful um, corbel pattern. Mm. And I remember reading that your uh, bricklayer talked to her about learning the corduroy. Maybe just talk through some. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'd, it was interesting because we'd spoken to another bricklayer like pre-construction who'd been like, oh, you'll never be able to build this. And we were like, oh, really? I feel like you could. <laughs> you know, we've sort of seen 
other similar precedents. And then when we got to site and the builder had been chosen by the client, which is always is, is often the case, but it means you never really know what you get. Yeah. Anyway, obviously Jason is amazing and extremely competent and with him came his preferred bricklayer, okay. Mick Lorimer. And he was just the best guy. <laughs> he was just so chilled out and was just like, oh, I mean, I did this in my apprenticeship in the 70s. Yeah, it's like no big deal. <laughs> you. <laughs> I mean, there were obviously like nuances to this, which he didn't do on his first job, yeah. like the curve and the pizza oven. But he was so enthusiastic about how you would achieve that. And there was a bit of like redo yeah. at various points, but it was great because it was brick and it wasn't precast. So if he needed to adjust a portion, it was doable without, say, pulling out a whole panel. Did that surprise you or were there any other things about the material that surprised you that you hadn't thought of? The way the brick changed colour was really surprising, actually. It changed colour from, you know, the palette arrived on site mm-hmm. and being a concrete product, it was kind of, there was a lot of kind of concrete residue, concrete mm-hmm. dust, and so it was quite light and quite grey. And then by the time it was laid, it had really shifted in colour. It was much warmer. Mm-hmm. And then in its completed form, it does sort of have a warm tone to it. But it is quite amazing how the colour changes depending on the light, which, I mean, it is like that for a lot of materials, but we really found particularly with this, really warm in sunlight and really cool in others, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's really important for architects to be informed about the best decisions they can make. I think a, a difficulty is having everyone on a project informed about the best environmental outcomes you need the client to be on board with it as well. And where budgets are involved, you need to readily be able to demonstrate that whatever you're doing that's environmentally responsible doesn't have a cost impact, Mm -hmm. which it often does. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly working to try and just have those solutions embedded or as a typical detail so that there's no question about it Mm -hmm. Um, I think the more architects can do that the better Mm -hmm. I just yeah it does trouble me that there's so much waste generated by construction not to mention sort of everything else Mm -hmm. involved and I think there's a lot of work to lower emissions and also be more innovative about reusing materials but there being processes in place that make it Easy, easier to do, mm. more possible, more standard. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Recently we interviewed a, an architecture student from the University of Queensland and Claire was talking about, you know, that natural impulsion to probably go in and, and decimate everything and start again, yeah. whereas now she said, you know, really for them it was about how can we work with what's yeah, already yeah. there and enhance it. Yeah. South Yarra House received a high accommodation in the Kevin Wall and Masonry Award. What was your... Um, experience of the awards and why did you think about entering, I guess? Over the years have seen lots of so many amazing projects entered into the Think Brick Awards and publicised via the Think Brick Awards and all of them of such a high calibre. It's an interesting award because it's so specific but it's so highly regarded in the industry 
And even as we were building this project, we were like, we've got to enter this in Think Brick. <laughs> this is, you know, so it's really on the, the radar. It was on the radar the whole time. And so we were so pumped to have it shortlisted and then receive a high commendation because there was so much effort and emphasis on the brick mm. element. And in terms of the the awards or the awards ceremony, we just loved that. <laughs> it was it happened straight out of Melbourne lockdown and we were absolutely ready to get out of Melbourne. <laughs> I think everyone was ready. <laughs> so it was awesome to go up to Sydney and to the Opera House no less mm. and sit amongst other architects who we just love and admire and have our work up there with theirs. Can just get a lot of young architects listening to the podcast or graduates. Any advice for for those people that are just finished there or studying and finishing? Any advice? Well, it's depressing to think that I'm not young anymore. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really important as a student and young architect is to listen and ask questions. I learned so much out of straight out of uni being in offices where I just listened to the conversations that were happening around me and sort of learning how to deal with various situations from sort of modelling my behaviour or responses on others. I think that's just so important. And in architecture, it's so it, it's so broad. There's so much to know. Like the more you know, the more you realise what you don't know. But at least if you're open to learning more and being interested. I think that's the most important aspect. I think COVID taught us whilst everyone can work remotely, it's all those sort of osmosis conversations. Absolutely. That, you know, you yeah. can't get on an hour Zoom or no, a team. No, no, so no. It's, it's all that informal stuff which is so valuable. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to the rapid round questions now. Ooh. Any answers are acceptable. Okay. Okay, reading the news, a newspaper or online? I'd say online, except if I'm on holiday. Handwriting or typing? Both. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? <laughs> I like magazines. <laughs> <laughs> or books. Okay. I don't really read e-books. <laughs> what is important to you, style or substance? I mean, I should say substance but i and i <laughs> but i really appreciate good style <laughs> coffee or tea coffee tv shows or movies tv shows antique or brand new modern combination both call or text text travel back in time or into the future i don't know about this one i really don't know i think i'll i don't i don't know Stay in the present? I think I'll stay in the present. <laughs> I mean, there's, I'd just quickly go back to a certain moment just to go and see a particular concert or something, but then I'd come straight back. Okay. Exterior or interior? On the edge. In the middle. In the middle. Um, video games or board games? Probably board games. Form or function? You should be able to do both, I think. And in relation to design, complex or simple? I'd say simple, but to achieve simplicity, there's a lot of complexity within that. Kat, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and we really look forward to seeing some more beautiful masonry designs from Pop Architecture in the awards coming up. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.